This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The woman you're about to hear from is in a rare position. She was singled out in a blistering decision from the U.S. Supreme Court this week. Diane Rice of Loveland was a member of the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, and her comments about religion were described by the high court as hostile. They are partly why justices decided in favor of a Christian baker who refused to make a custom cake for a gay wedding. Let's listen first to this recording of Rice's comments at a hearing in 2013. Freedom of religion and religion has been used to justify all kinds of discrimination throughout history, whether it be slavery, whether it be the Holocaust, whether it be, I mean, we, we can list hundreds of situations where freedom of religion has been used to justify discrimination. And to me, it is one of the most despicable pieces of rhetoric that people can use to, to um, use their religion to hurt others. Well, let's get Diane Rice's side of the story. She wanted to make two things clear. She's not an attorney. She's a former human services worker and school board member. And she says she's not a Democrat, although she was appointed to the commission by one. The interesting thing is that I never made these comments until after the commission had all voted and the decision was made. So I certainly didn't influence anyone else on the commission. That is to Um, say, you made these remarks after the commission had ruled in the gay couple's favor? Yes. What do you say to people who think, uh, including apparently some of the justices on the high court, that the commission was, to use the justices' words, hostile to people of faith? Well, I I can't speak for other members. I can only speak for myself. And I am not hostile to people of faith. I was raised in a Christian family. I wholeheartedly believe and appreciate people's faith and really think people who gain comfort from their deep faith, that's a wonderful thing for them. I think the comments were misconstrued. Well, to the comments themselves, tell us more about the context. What I was thinking about and what I thought about even before we ruled on the case was a time when religion in this country was used to deny a license for an interracial marriage, for instance, or to deny a man and woman a hotel room or a seat in a restaurant or many other things. And, of course, the Holocaust is the worst example of singling out one religion against another. My point being that using any excuse for um, discrimination is not right. Is that what you think he was doing? I don't know if he was doing that. I don't want to assign motives to him. But clearly not baking the cake was, I believe, not within the Colorado Public Accommodations Law. And yet didn't the commission rule in favor of bakers on the opposite side of the political spectrum who might have otherwise been forced to write anti-gay messages? Those cases never even came to the commission. They were investigated by the division, and there was really no probable cause found. But 
here's the difference. In those cases, a clear message, an offensive message was, and if you read Justice Ginsburg's dissent, she points this out very, very clearly. In those cases, the person going to a baker went and said, I want this offensive message on this cake. And the bakeries that they went to said, no, we won't put offensive messages on the cake. In the case of Masterpiece and uh, Mr. Craig and Mr. Mullins, they never said what they wanted as a message on the cake. They were told that he would not bake them the cake before they ever describe the cake at all. And and I think that's a key, key issue. Now, the ruling said in part that it was not the Civil Rights Commission's place to question the conviction of uh, the baker in this case, Jack Phillips, but whether or not he had violated this accommodations law. And that this muddied the waters. What's your reaction to that? And I suppose just in general to the Supreme Court's ruling. Well, we were told we were to rule on whether this action violated Colorado's public accommodation law. And I thought that was what we did. There are a lot of things that have muddied the waters, I believe. But my reaction is, I think... The ruling is okay. Yes, this one case was overturned, but I don't think Colorado's public accommodation law has been overturned. And frankly, if my comments, and I don't know this, this is pure speculation, if my comments allowed for the narrow ruling that only affect this one case and don't have precedent for all of our LGBTQ rights in Colorado. I'm okay with that. That's a good thing. And I'm willing to take the heat if we aren't setting civil rights back farther. Does that make sense? It does. I suppose, though, that had the case been uh, cleaner, for lack of a better word, more clear cut, that the ruling might have been in, in either direction. It could have been, but that's the point. It could have been worse. Do you have any regrets? Um, I'm a very direct speaker. I don't mince words. And in some ways, I think maybe I have um, caused undue problems for the civil, Colorado Civil Rights Division and Commission. And that's my only regret, because I know during the legislative session, they had some tough times with reauthorization. I did not mean to cause them any trouble, but I don't have any regrets for what I said, and I don't take them back. I don't apologize for that. Diane, thanks for sharing your story with us. Thank you for calling me. Diane Rice of Loveland is a former member of the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Her comments during a 2013 hearing were singled out in the Masterpiece Cake Shop ruling this week from the U.S. Supreme Court. We heard from critics of that commission earlier this week. That story is at CPR.org. 
Climate change is not a priority for President Trump, but it certainly figures into the long-term viability of the coal industry, which Trump is bullish on. Just last month, Wyoming's Governor Matt Mead officially dedicated the country's largest carbon capture test facility to grab CO2 from coal emissions before they reach the atmosphere, but not just to squirrel that carbon away. Turning carbon emissions, a byproduct of coal energy generation, into useful usable products will be one of the most monumental achievements of this century. And as we'll hear, a Colorado electricity provider is a big backer of this new project. To talk about it, we have Jason Baker on the line. He heads the Wyoming Infrastructure Authority, which runs this new test center. And welcome to the program, Jason. Thanks for having me on. Capturing carbon dioxide from burning coal is not a technology for some distant future. It exists now. It's just very expensive. Of course, coal is already dealing with difficult economics, competition from cheaper renewables and natural gas. So I take it that's what's behind the goal to find some way to make money reselling that carbon. What are what are some of the possibilities? Well, you're absolutely right. You know, finding a better way to I guess restructure and repackage the economics surrounding coal. You know, uh, currently there is a lot of CO2 that is being used for enhance oil recovery. You know, there's a market that exists. Um, there's a value there. There's actually a shortage of CO2 available for all the places that would like to do EOR. So that's a that's a very simple example of today the, of a value being placed on that. Just out of curiosity, um, to, to make clear, that is using carbon to enhance uh, oil exploration. Is that right? Correct, correct. So in, in a traditional oil field, you know, when, when they drill and a lot of these ones that are over 100 years old, you know, their their economic viability is, is used up. You know, they've only captured about 40% of the oil, and there's plenty left there to to get. So what they're using is a supercritical CO2, so CO2 that's been pressurized into a liquid form, and using that to repressurize old oil fields to uh, extract additional oil. So um, very common technology have been being used for, you know, decades and, uh, you know, a market exists for that. Now, would that think, would that permanently sequester that carbon or is that just a use for carbon that's then re-emitted? Well, uh, the CO2 certainly does stay in the ground. You know, it, it is in a closed loop system. You know, uh, there there is CO2 that comes back out with the well, but it is not emitted it's you know removed from the oil and it's reinjected back into the into the formation. Okay. So though in that case, I mean, of course, it, it's yielding more in the way of fossil fuels. What are some other potential uses for CO two? Sure, um, you know at the end of the day, CO two is one carbon atom and two oxygen atoms. So you know looking at the chemistry of all the things you can do with carbon and oxygen, um, one of the areas that we've seen a lot of promise is with basically mineralizing the CO2, turning it into almost like a limestone type of, uh, of substance that can then be used in concretes, um, aggregates, building materials, things like that. Okay, and that too would trap the carbon. That's correct. That's correct. You know, it's just uh, it's mineralized in, into a permanent form. You describe this new integrated test center 
to explore this this use as an RV park for these kinds of technologies. <laughs> uh, the state of Wyoming put up $15 million for the project. It's located at a working coal power plant in the northern part of the state. Just in layman's terms, what goes on there? So what it is is a place for technologies that have uh, shown a great promise in a laboratory scale, you know, whether it's at CU Boulder, University of Wyoming, whatever, um, to scale up, take that next size up leap and test under industrial real-world conditions. So moving from those laboratory spaces, building something that's maybe a half a megawatt in scale, and being able to plug it into um, our flue gas delivery network that we've created at the ITC. So similarly to when you think about an RV park, you know, you, you bring your camper in, you hook it into electricity and water and, um, you know, all the things that you need to, to, uh, to, to operate. It's the same thing with these technologies is, is they're, they're, they're larger than lab, but still small enough where they're, you know, on a skid mount or we've seen them in shipping containers on the backs of trailers so they can be brought in hooked into the flue gas, hooked into water, electric, you know, run for however many hours they need to gather the data that they need, and then it's unhooked, removed, and hopefully the next one will come in behind it. Except that this is an RV park for the idea of capturing <laughs> carbon from coal. So what what That's is correct. driving Wyoming? Maybe it's a mix of things. To what extent might it be climate change? To what extent is it the economics of coal? Well, you know, Governor Meade summed it up perfectly several years ago when he said, you know what, the time for debate over climate change is over. And the thought is, how can we depoliticize energy and climate change? And, and because, when, unfortunately, energy, especially that part of energy, has become so politicized with every candidate, each party, sort of taking their preferred, you know, portfolio of energy and when you start talking about it in terms like that, people just sort of naturally retreat to their corners. But when you start talking about technology, that's everyone can get behind, and mm. it can mean different things to different people. So it sounds like so, it's, a, it's a mix driving this in Wyoming. I want to point out that Colorado's Tri-State Energy, which owns both coal mines and coal-fired power plants, has been involved with this integrated test center from the very beginning, and you're actually using the plant for something of a, a X prize, a $20 million competition to figure out how to capture carbon from coal. Uh, and, and this does have global ramifications, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Tri-State has been very, very forward-leaning and thinking on, you know, carbon management technologies. You know, they, they invested $5 million in the, the integrated test center itself, but they were also one of the early drivers in this Carbon X Prize that you're speaking about. And what the Carbon X Prize is, it's, it's a competition run by the X Prize Foundation. Uh, think SpaceX uh, is kind of the one that they're really known for. But yeah. this particular project it will award $20 million and total prizes to the teams that are best able to, to capture the CO2 out of an actual power plant and then convert it into some other marketable product. So you have both the capture and the conversion side of, of, of uh, the equation. And I understand there are different companies from different countries that are a part of that competition. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm wondering, 
if Wyoming considered, gosh, why spend all of this money, all of this energy trying to capture carbon from coal and not just invest it into solar and wind? You know, that doesn't have to... Wyoming is a natural resource state, and then from statehood over 100 years ago, the way that the tax structure in the state is set up is we don't have any state income taxes. Our property taxes are incredibly low, and so coal, oil, and gas provide 70% of the entire state tax base. And so if these if coal, oil, and gas go away and are replaced by others, and I mean, there are plenty of reasons to have that conversation, the state will have to fundamentally change its tax structure and its tax system. So, um, so a shrinking coal industry means billions of dollars less for paying our schools and roads and all those services that come, and a wind industry that doesn't have the same sort of tax burden. So it really is the bedrock of the the economy for the state. And yet coal is dealing with real economic problems. That's what you are fundamentally trying to solve here. Um, I guess, I, do, do you see that the future of coal is long in Wyoming and around the world? I mean, do you see this having well, global benefits? We, we, we do, you know. Um, clearly there, there are issues with, in the United States. But we, we've partnered with Japan um, over several years. We've, we've signed an MOU, and uh, actually a Japanese company will be coming to the ITC to test the technology as well. They're building over 40 new coal-fired power plants in the next couple of decades to replace the nuclear fleet that they've phased out. And they want the cleanest, most up-to-date, you know, uh, technologically advanced technologies. But they're also interested in Wyoming's coal. I I suspect that Japan is partly motivated by what happened at Fukushima. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And while economics are the major driver in the U.S., they're not necessarily the major driver um, globally. And the U.S. uses, gosh, it's probably less than 10 percent of the global of global coal supply these days. And when you have a country like Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, uh, countries that don't have their own domestic supply of energy, they're willing to pay premiums for security of supply because they know, you know, this, the government of Wyoming is, is stable. These countries are stable. Mm-hmm. Rules of law, contracts ap- apply like they don't necessarily with China and Indonesia. So they are very interested in, you know, both quality of supply and long-term contracts. And so, the idea here, Wyoming looking into making that process of burning energy from coal uh better in terms of carbon capture. So we've been talking Mm -hmm. about with Jason Beggar. He's executive director of the Wyoming Infrastructure Authority, and he spoke with us from Cheyenne about this new carbon capture test center. Colorado voters may be getting their ballots for the June 26th primaries as early as this week. This will be the first year in which unaffiliated voters can participate in the primaries, and those voters will receive a Democratic and Republican ballot. Never before in history have we sent you a ballot and said, but don't return it. Pick one or the other. You can't vote both. That is Secretary of State Wayne Williams. But whichever ballot unaffiliated voters choose, their selection may not be as private as they'd think. Last month, I spoke with University of Denver political scientist Seth Maskett about the new system. Hi, Seth. Hi, thank you for having me on. 
We'll get to that privacy thing in, in just a moment, but voters approved this new model in 2016. Remind us what was behind it. Well, some of the concerns behind it were just a lot of the uh, some of the aggravations with the caucus process in 2016. Uh, really, in, in in both parties, where people were concerned that it was it was kind of a disorganized process, and also that unaffiliated voters really didn't have a choice, even though they were in some ways the largest party affiliation uh, in the state, where you have uh, you know more people were uh, calling themselves unaffiliated than calling themselves Republicans or Democrats, and many of those unaffiliateds wanted to say in uh, who their party picked for for president or for governor or for any other race. Let's be clear. Um, what happens when an unaffiliated voter chooses one of the ballots and votes in a party primary this year? They don't lose that unaffiliated status, right? That's correct. They remain unaffiliated um, and they simply get to participate in that uh, in that party's primary. However, they, they can only participate in that party's primary. They can't pick and choose among offices. They can't vote in the Democratic primary for governor and in the Republican primary for the House race or anything like that. They, they have to stick with one of them. Um, and also um, that choice that they make of which party to affiliate with just for the purposes of that primary – that's a public record. So their their vote choice is not public, but which uh, which party they chose to join uh, for just the purposes of voting in that primary, uh, that is a public record. And that's the crux of what I want to talk to you about. Uh, as you say, unless you took a ballot selfie, which is legal in Colorado, and revealed the candidates you voted for, that is not public. But the ballot you chose be it Democrat, be it Republican, that is public information. That's not private. That's correct. And that was really uh, kind of a compromise measure that, that came out of the legislature on this. Uh, there were some who were advocating basically for people to uh, simply affiliate with the party from that point on. That is, if you chose the Democratic ballot this year, then you would get the Democratic ballot in the mail two years from now and you would be functionally treated as a Democrat. And others pushed back on that saying, you know, the whole point of being unaffiliated is to not affiliate. Um, so this was seen as kind of a kind of a middle ground there um, where you would just be treated as part of that party's primary, but just for that election. OK, so people who are very private about their political participation uh, should beware approaching this new primary in Colorado. What do the parties get out of this? If, if that was a bargaining chip in the creation of this law, uh, what what benefits do do they reap? Well, potentially there's some value in knowing uh, who's affiliating with with which party. Uh, that is, you know, we know that uh, the vast majority of unaffiliated voters um, largely stick with one party throughout mm -hmm. their life. They may call themselves in, independent or unaffiliated or anything like that, but chances are they vote pretty consistently with one party. They just prefer not to describe themselves that way. Um, the problem is it's very hard for parties or campaigns to figure out just who those people are and which ones generally affiliate with their party. So in theory, this helps them figure that out. So if they have a good idea, if the Democratic Party has a good idea who the, the pretty loyal Democratic voters are, even if they call themselves unaffiliated, they can reach out to those people in future elections. They can uh, send them mail, knock on their door, you know, try and make sure that those people turn out. I want to be clear that the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, in looking at this as a public record, could connect an individual with which ballot they chose. It's not that it's generic, like we know that this person lives in this zip code. They could say Jane Smith 
requested a Republican ballot. It's 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 that clear. Um, yeah, and this is this is pretty standard across uh, just about every state that uh, you can uh, request or purchase uh, this data from the Secretary of State's website. Um, there's just a, a list of a voter registration list to see who is affiliated with which party, who voted for that party, and yeah, you get uh, you get names, you get addresses, and you get uh, the party choice for the primary on that. Do you think this is a powerful new tool for the parties? You said that this, in theory, couldn't could make a difference. It's potentially useful. Um, the problem is it's it's not always a very clear indicator of which way a, a, a voter really cares. So, for example, um, you might have someone who's legitimately torn between the two parties and just decide, well, the Republican primary doesn't look that interesting to me. I think I know how that one's going to turn out, whereas the Democratic one looks more competitive. So maybe I'll vote in that because mm. I think my vote can make a bigger difference. Um, or they might uh, actually really prefer one party but decide to in some ways meddle with the other party's primary uh, because they want to produce a weaker candidate uh, in, in, out of the primary. Um, so so there, there are all sorts of reasons why someone might pick one primary over the other that don't actually have much to do with uh, the way they actually lean. Right. That may not reveal a lot about that person's political thoughts. Uh, thanks for explaining this to us, Seth. We appreciate it. Oh, certainly. Thanks for having me. Seth Maskett directs the Center on American Politics at the University of Denver. We talked about privacy issues in this month's primaries, which are open to any voter. If you're unaffiliated and are taking part, we want to hear from you. How are you deciding which ballot that is to fill out? Is it a particular race, a penchant towards one party over another? And how does it feel as an independent to participate this early? Email us with your thoughts, news at CPR.org. That's news at CPR.org. We may include you in an upcoming story. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And finally today, music from Denver singer-songwriter Kyle Emerson. Dorothy... How do you do? It's been a while since I've seen you Well, I hope you made it fine up there You're looking down without a care This is the title track to Emerson's 2017 album, Dorothy Alice. The project began when he was down and out, living in L.A. His band had broken up, his relationship was falling apart, and he was sleeping in his car. When Emerson learned of a death in the family in Colorado, he knew it was time to move back. He found his footing again in Denver and released his debut album. CPR's Open Air ranked it among the best of last year.
Dorothy Alice by Denver singer-songwriter Kyle Emerson. You can see video of him in the CPR Performance Studio at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters. To fade away.